please open your Bibles, if you have a Bible, to 1 Corinthians 4. And if you have a cell phone, please turn off the ringer or all the noises. If you've got an accompaniment there, that would be super helpful. We are in our series on 1 Corinthians, um, a perfect Savior for an imperfect church. And we are closing today this final text in this first section. We're really finishing the first section. It's amazing. I think perhaps the longest section in the whole book is, is really about four chapters long. And it's all about this issue of divisions we've been talking about for, for several weeks now. Remember, as we've been studying, the context here is these folks are caught up in judging one favorite leader over another favorite leader. And they're using these favorite leaders to kind of divide themselves up into cliques and claim superiority over each other uh, through these leaders. The leaders were godly, but the motives and the uh, appetite, the cravings and the people for finding their lives in these specific leaders was disordered and, and it wasn't godly. And so it was kind of tearing, it was one of these things that was really tearing this church apart. It was so significant that, like I said, Paul spends four chapters on this. It's the first thing he talks about uh, in the book. So something we've seen the Corinthians doing, they were deciding they could see deep into the heart motives of these leaders. So they were able to judge some as amazing because they thought they could see deep into their hearts. And they were judging some as terrible because they thought they could judge deep into their hearts. They were... They were using that to, again, make themselves look better than others who followed different people. And they were finding their identity in these leaders. And recall how important it was, if you might remember from some of the earlier messages, in the Corinthian culture to find their identity in things like these leaders. These leaders, these speakers were like status symbols in Corinth, in this Greek city. It's kind of hard for us to identify with it. But following the right leader was like going to the right college. It was like wearing the right clothes. Uh, it was like being in the right income bracket. It was really a way to kind of define your status among others. So it was a really big deal for these people. <clears throat> and the rest of the passage today, Paul is going to, he's going to try to show these brothers and sisters the, what's at the base of this appetite for finding themselves in these specific leaders. He's going he's to basically show that it's pride. Uh, pride is fueling these worldly desires. And then he's going to try to show them the proper, uh, the proper esteem they should have, uh, for, for, for what leadership is. And, and, and he's going to try to use that to kind of expose the worldly values that they were clinging on to. And, um, for the, for, for the sake of understanding today, I've kind of divided this chapter up, or this section up into three parts. As we, we often have two or three parts. Today it's three, it's not two. But the three sections are going to be, uh, pride deflated, humiliation exalted, and a fatherly appeal. Pride deflated, humili- humiliation exalted, and a fatherly appeal. So, I'm, I'm really hopeful that the Lord has something for all of us today. This is, there's a lot of stuff in this text. And, um, and it's, it's hard for me to, to kind of sum it all up in one sentence. But, but the way I've titled this really is, as you guys see it up there. Well, I guess the title, we've already passed the title. So, um, it, yeah, there it is. The poverty of pride and the glory of humiliation. The poverty of pride and the glory of humiliation. Um, I've, I've just really been blown away by this text as I've seen it. And I, I'm humbled as I approach it to, to be, have the privilege of trying to unpack it for our church family. And I'm also aware that I can't really do justice to this passage. So let's just pray together that God's spirit would do justice to God's word and he would really serve our hearts to be able to see all that he wants us to see out of it. It is, it is an amazing passage once again. Would you pray with me for that? 
Oh, Lord, your word is so amazing. And uh, Lord, I just thank you so much that you have allowed me up until today to have this privilege um, many mornings to, to, to present your word, having looked at it and seen it and being given the, the, the honor and the grace and the, um, the support and the provision by my church family to be able to sit uh, for days before um, and, and be able to look at your word and, and consider it this way, Lord. Uh, but it's not for me, Lord. Um, it's not at least only for me, because I know you do good things in my heart too, but it's for your people. And so, God, I pray that today you would serve your people through your word and that you'd use what I've tried to do here to bless them and you'd go around what I haven't done well to bless them and that your word would really do a wonderful work in our hearts this morning. You would really just open our eyes through the Holy Spirit to be able to see wonderful things in your word, to be, uh, Lord, mesmerized by it, to be gripped by it, to be... To see it's, to see your glory in it, Lord, and your goodness in it. God, we need your Holy Spirit to be able to do this, and we thank you that you are so good as a Father that you, you give us your Spirit to be able to do this. So I pray in Jesus' holy name for a, a powerful, Spirit-led work this morning in all of our hearts to be able to see and be changed by your Word. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Amen. So, point one, pride deflated. I'll read uh, through verse 7, starting in verse 6, actually, I believe. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you would be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So remember what Paul's been talking about with these folks. Again, he's, he's, they've been boasting in these leaders. They've been taking their pride in these specific amazing speakers and or they've been beating down other people because they're not following the right specific people. And they've been judging these leaders. And, and Paul says, don't go beyond what is written. He's essentially saying, don't go beyond what God allows you to go, where God allows you to go in regards to these people. If his word doesn't allow you to view them or judge them a certain way, then don't. Don't see them, for instance, as demigods to find your identity in. Don't see them as losers by whom you can judge their followers with this attitude of superiority. Don't act as if you really know what's in their heart to such a degree that you can discern what God has not yet revealed in. Don't think you're better than other people because you follow one leader over another. Don't think you're better because you, you listen to John Piper and your friend listens to Rick Warren. But then he goes to the heart of the matter. He goes to their pride. That's what that's what's being st- Broked in all of this. He says, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He's going right to the root of pride. He's arguing here. Okay, okay, let's say for argument's sake, you, you are and your leader is smarter and more godly. And therefore, you are more uh, intelligent and more godly and more spiritually and, uh, mature because you listen to John Piper every day. 
And let's say someone's preferred preacher is not as insightful or anointed or discerning as John Piper. How does that make you better before God than them? Let's talk about you. Isn't it true that, let's say that that's going on in you, that there's a, a great growth and in intelligence and insight in you, in you and, and in your leader that doesn't occur in those other people. Isn't it true that any good thing about you did not come from you? The message translates this pretty well. He says, isn't everything you have and everything you are sheer gifts from God? Isn't everything you have and everything you are sheer gifts from God? So what's the point of all this competing and comparing? This is so helpful and so freeing. Paul is saying, take an inventory. Every spiritual gift you have is because God gave it to you through his spirit. Every natural gift you have is because God gave it to you and his creating you. Any strength of character you have is because God worked through your upbringing or your parents or your trials or other means to shape you into that place of strength of character. Any degree of spiritual maturity you have is because of God being faithful to keep you through many trials and tribulations. So he says, since everything you have, your good looks, your work ethic, it all comes from God, directly or indirectly. Why are you boasting? Why are you considering yourself better than somebody else? All your character, your accomplishments, your physical, intellectual, or spiritual beauty. God says, it, it all comes from me. What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We were never meant to carry the weight of our own glory. We were never meant to find our confidence and our boast in ourselves or in other people. Isaiah 42, 8 proclaims, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. God says, all good things come from me, and I will not give the glory of that truth to another person. I will not let you take credit, God says, for being the source of anything good in you. And when you boast in yourself or you boast in someone else in such a way that gives you a sense of being superior than others, you're really saying, God, you're not the source. I'm the source. There is only one source, the Lord, sa the Lord says, of, of all good things, of all our spiritual, intellectual, physical gifts and beauty, what we've done or what we have. It's all derived from someone else, the Lord. And God says, I'm not going to allow you to idolize yourself or idolize others. It's an insult to God, to his glory, when we boast in ourselves. Or we, we, we boast in people, we boast in created things and find our, find our, our self-worth there instead of in Him. And really, it's not just an insult to God, it's a trap for us, isn't it? It's a burden, this, this sense of self-glory and, and pride and, in, in ourselves, what we have, what we've done. When that becomes our identity, it's a burden. It, it, it hurts, whether it's the sense of being owed something because we think we're all that. Or the sense of having to prove myself to others because I think I must be all that in their eyes. Or the sense of having to carry the weight of expectations 
that other people have for me because I must be all that. Or the sense of having to beat somebody out at something because I should be all that. I should be all that. Self-glory is a trap. And it's so freeing to be able to say, I, I don't find my glory in myself. It all comes from you, Lord. You, you carry that. I thank you for what I am. Um, and what you haven't given me, I trust that you know why you haven't given me that. When I was in high school, um, it was a big deal. Like what, what decal of what college you could put on the back of your car in the, in the area where I was growing up. So like people would drive around with like, I was grew up in Virginia. So people would drive around with UVA on the back of their car and William and Mary in the back of their car. And, you know, maybe some people had Harvard or Yale in the back of their car. And I mean, sometimes it got ridiculous, you know, if you had a lot of kids or you sometimes kids would like my cousin went to Naval Academy. So I'm going to put Naval Academy, on my bumper sticker, you know, and like in high school, you could walk around the parking lots and see all these like different bumper stickers for all these different co- colleges you went to. And it was like, I'm not saying there's anything necessarily bad about good colleges and being able to say, you know, I went to Dartmouth or whatever, or I went to um, Hood. But like what was going on in my heart in high school was like that became a defining issue like for me and my friends like ooh what you know you'd see those decals you'd be like oh wow they're cool look it says it says Yale like the magical Yale like what in the world that must be incredible like and and it, you know people would just have like 17 different decals on the back of their car and that's I remember when I got saved just like seeing the ridiculousness of that you know Seeing the trap of that, seeing the the weight of that, and and how like that was a sad way to define people, to try to define myself, and how good it was that I felt like God had set me free from that. It's so much better. It's so much more joy giving when we're not desperate for recognition or accomplishment, when we're not a slave to our appetite to be noticed, and we can be people at peace with each other more readily. Because we're not comparing and competing. We can be a people satisfied with what God has allowed us to be. And satisfied with what he hasn't allowed us to be. Because he's just decided this is what's good for you. Each of us in our varied gifts and graces and accomplishments. To be given the gift of contentment. And what, what he's accomplished. And what he's decided not to accomplish. To be confident that anything he's called us to be. Anything he's called us to do. He'll fulfill it. We don't have to be crushed by the weight of expectations, either in ourselves or others. And we don't have to find our identity in, in our pride in those things. First Peter 4 says, As each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You see how God-centered that is? As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as a good stewards of the manifold grace grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as the one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. And then Paul says, or Peter says, so then all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In this beautiful picture of Peter's, we see that the weight and the glory of the gift is on the giver. And not us. We see him fulfilling in us what needs to be accomplished. And so he gets the credit as we trust him 
for those gifts, as we trust him for those strengths, he gets the glory and then we get the joy of being dependent on him, filled by him, carried by him, being able to see him through the grace that he gives as opposed to being crushed by the weight of our own need to accomplish and prove ourselves and compete and strive. So there's, there's actually a, a great invitation under the subtext here for, for, for unity in that. Because when we look to God and we, we give all the credit to God, it frees us up not to compete with each other, not to compare ourselves with each other. And that fosters unity, something that we're not experiencing. Section two, humiliate, humiliation exalted, humiliation exalted. So Paul's not done seeking to heal them of their pride and their boasting created things. He's now going to apply a, a slightly sharper instrument here. Paul's going to slip in some, some sanctified sarcasm, some holy irony into their, into this uh, message he's bringing to them. First, Paul takes up their boasting as if, as if it was true. He's, he's again going to kind of argue their point, but this time he's kind of doing it in a sarcastic way. Already, you have all you want. Already, you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Let's stop and look at verse 6. Paul's saying, in effect, you guys are really satisfied with yourselves. You think you have all you need. You're caught up in, in these worldly values. The cleverness of your teachers, their speech, their sophistication, their intelligence, how it reflects on you. It's almost as if you've got everything you need. The Greek is, it's really a word that says you're filled up, you're satisfied with the food, all the food you could ever want. You've arrived. And he, 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 he makes this allusion to, to the end time, gloried, perfected state of the resurrected person. You've become kings. Would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Paul's basically saying, man, I wish we were in the state of perfection. I wish we were in our resurrected, perfected bodies. Because then I could be exalted with you guys and I could be done with the suffering I've got to go through. And now he's seeking to introduce this, this section with this dripping, heart-rending irony as he contrasts himself and his partners in the gospel with the Corinthians. This is one of the most shaking and gripping for me passages that I know of right now in scripture. Paul's going to paint this picture of the difference between him and the Corinthians. He's going to, he's going to use this metaphor of an ancient Roman military victory parade. In the front of the parade are the conquering victors, the generals, the soldiers. And in the back, way back, are the captives, the prisoners. In front was all the pomp and the circumstance and the glory and the celebration and the the flags and the beautiful uniforms and the armor. In the back were the prisoners literally being dragged through the streets, literally being dragged through the mud and the filth. And they were being dragged to be on their way to the gladiatorial combat where they might be butchered by gladiators or eaten by lions. And with sanctified sarcasm, Paul's contrasting himself with them. Starting in verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak 
But you are strong. You are held in high honor. But we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. Paul is saying, you who boast in man and boast in yourselves and your sophistication and your knowledge and worldly position and worldly strength. Take a moment to consider what God is doing with his true apostles. Take a moment to consider what God is doing with his most authoritative representative leaders on earth. He has made us in his sovereignty the scum of the earth. The scum of the earth. And Paul's not doing this to make them feel guilty. No, Paul sees his plight as God's work. Verse 9, I think God has exhibited us to be a spectacle. It's God's work. It's God's intention. And, and, and really, Paul is wearing these hardships. Hardships that, that the Corinthians in the world would see as signs of weakness and contemptibility and even disgust, he's saying, no, these are marks of honor from God. They're, they're confirmations of God's authentic apostleship in our lives. And in this way, Paul is saying, Corinthians, do you remember what the true character of discipleship is? Do you remember what the true call of the disciple is? Do you remember what it really means to be a disciple? It doesn't mean worldly glory. It doesn't mean that you put your stock in your Harvard decal or the money you have or the beauty of your home or, or that in lacking those things, you become a slave to wanting those things. No, Paul says following Jesus is death to those things. We follow our Savior who said in Luke 6, and listen to how this passage in Luke 6 parallels what Paul has just said. How, how almost sequentially it, it, it follows what Paul has just described. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, 
to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. Jesus in this passage is not saying that if, if you're rich, if you laugh, if there are people who like you, that you're doomed or that you're not his disciple. But he is saying, watch out. He is saying, don't find your identity in the things the world finds their identity in. Don't find your identity in the gifts such that you obscure the giver. And push him out while you fall in love with money and entertainment and homes and power and prestige. God can give you those things or God can withhold those things. But find your identity in being my disciple. And the irony that Paul is is making here is that while the Corinthians were satisfied with their wealth and satisfied in finding their food and their sophistication. And they considered themselves intelligent and wise in the world's eyes and self-sufficient. The truth was that those who were really wealthy and intelligent, these apostles, were being called the scum of the earth by the world. And so we must be careful not to judge our success in terms of this world's values. Natural intelligence, worldly power, wealth and good looks. When you see Christians persecuted and keeping their faith like Paul. God is exalting them as models for us. When you see them treated like the scum of the earth. When you see them treated like crazy people and idiots for standing up for their faith or even worse persecuted and tortured and imprisoned for standing up for christ god is exalting them as models before us he's saying this is what discipleship is he's not abandoning them he's not abandoning them because they don't live the american dream he's He's actually exalting them in front of us as models. When you yourself go through or you see other people go through seasons of crisis and trial and distress and illness and trouble. Do you think God is abandoning me? Why would God be doing this to me? God's not abandoning you. He's not trying to push you away from him. No, he's not doing that to other people that you see going through rough periods of unemployment or illness No, God is perfecting you. God is redeeming you in that suffering. He is using it to transform you. You should see God in those things, training you, preparing you for a greater sense of your insufficiency in yourself and inviting you to a greater sense of his sufficiency for you. When the world hates you for your love for Jesus and your faithfulness to his word, you should rejoice as one marked as a child of God. And again, when we, when we do, as we, as so many of us do in the West, we find ourselves with worldly wealth and worldly honor and we need to make it a way of life to ask God, God, keep me. 
from falling in love with the gifts over the giver. Help me not to find my appetites fulfilled in what this world has to offer. Keep me hungry for you. Keep me thirsting for you. And Paul, you know, he he had to pray that prayer. He had to live that life. You might remember in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul has this amazing experience where he he gets to see God in in a way that it's, it's a spiritual miracle, really. Paul says he's caught up into the third heavens. We don't know everything that means, but it means that Paul had a, a either he was riddle, literally physically brought into heaven for a time or he was spiritually brought into heaven for a time out of his body. He might have had an out-of-body experience, but it's very interesting. You can see it again in 2 Corinthians 12. But he says about this experience that God knew that that experience that God wanted to give him and bless him with was so powerful that because of Paul's sin nature, it could ruin Paul. That he could fall in love with the experience God had given him and consider himself the most amazing man on earth. The most spiritually powerful person on earth because he's had this experience. And so Paul had to receive from God what he calls a thorn in the flesh. A messenger, Paul says, of Satan. God allowed Satan to bring Paul into a place of of torment and weakness. And Paul said, God, take this away. God said, no. Paul said, take it away. God said, no. Paul said, please, God, take it away. God said, no, Paul, I can't take this away. This is actually protecting you from pride and arrogance. This is humbling you in a way you need right now. And brother, my grace, son, (laughs) my grace is going to be sufficient for you, Paul, he said. And so that's the way God treats us. You know, he, he buffets us with trials and illnesses and difficulties in order to humble us, to keep us depending on him, to keep us from falling in love with the gifts he gives over the giver of the gifts. Finally, after this section of sanctified sarcasm, Paul closes the whole section with this fatherly appeal, verse 14 through 17. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Isn't it funny? I mean, when I read this, I thought, after everything we've read in these chapters, is Paul now like boasting in himself? Is he like, isn't he pointing to himself and saying, I'm your father. You don't have many people like me. I'm your spiritual father. Be an imitator of me. I'm sending you Timothy to remind you about me. This is how, this is how interesting and amazing God's word is and how insightful it is. We are allowed to just stop and really think about it. Paul is pointing to himself. He is. But what is his motivation? It's everything. What's his motivation? His motivation isn't to boast in himself. His motivation isn't to make himself look awesome in their eyes. No, his motivation is love. Love. He says, I'm your dad in Christ. I brought you to Jesus. I am, I'm crazy about your preservation in him. I am crazy about your success in the Lord. God has made me a trustworthy servant, Paul is saying. Follow me as I follow Christ. 
So it's not with this sense of special worth in himself, but this sense of a loyalty to these people, born out of a love for them, born out of the, the call that God has given him to care for them. It's all about the motivation. Paul isn't building himself up. He is loving these people with everything he has. And he's saying, look, folks, I really do love you. I really do love you. Please, please, don't follow these worldly ways. Recognize that my life is an offering being poured out for you, he's saying. I mean, as I read this passage, I just feel like the Spirit reminded me, Paul did this for me. Paul did this for you. And then I I got really excited about who Paul was. (laughs) And I felt like the Lord had to remind you. I said to Jen, Jen, I've got to be careful. I'm going to start to worship Paul here. Paul did that because it was the Spirit of God living in Paul. Because that's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus did. He poured out himself for us. He gave everything for us. The beauty that we see in Paul here, crying out, I'm, I'm a father to you in the Lord. I'm giving everything up for you. That's only possible because Jesus lives in Paul. And Paul will be the first one to tell you that. That's the amazing thing of the gospel. Before, before the gospel, Paul was all about himself and his, and his religious accomplishments. He, he evaluated himself in just the way the Corinthians were guilty of. How, how amazing his education was in, in Judaism. How amazing his accomplishments were as a priest. But now it's, it's all about these people. It's all about their success. It's all about pouring himself out. Like Jesus poured himself out. That's what the gospel does to us. That's what it makes us into when we're caught up in who God is. And haven't you found that in in all your life in Christ? If, If you're his child, haven't you found that God has sent you people like Paul? You may not have a hundred of them. And they didn't either. He says, you not, you not have many fathers. You don't have many people like you, like me. But he has sent you people because he loves you, who have his spirit of love in him, who pour into you. Haven't you found that when you gave yourself to Jesus, he fulfilled his promise in Matthew 19 when, when he said, when Jesus said, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Yeah, there's a wrong kind of attachment we can have for people. The Corinthians had it when they became cause for defining ourselves by them. But when we come to God, we receive his family. And he just loves to lavish on us brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in the Lord. And we become rich in that. I don't know what I would do without family in Christ who've prayed for me, who've talked with me, who've helped me with my marriage. I remember just just a few, I think a couple of months ago, I was really struggling. I was in the parking lot of like the $5 store, which is just sad in itself, you know, that like I'm just hanging out at the $5 store. Just, no, I'm just kidding. I mean, that was, I love that place. My kids love that place. But, but I was literally just really discouraged and and I just thought to myself, I would really love to talk to this one brother. I'm not going to say his name because it would embarrass him maybe. But it's a guy in this church. And I just thought to myself, 
I don't know why it just occurred to me. I just would really love to talk to this brother. And I get in my car and I turn the key and there's a knock on my window and I look out my window and it's that person. Let's call him Jim Bob. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I kid you not. This is like two months ago. God, I, am, I just would love to talk to Jim Bob about this. There's Jim Bob. <laughs> I mean, it was just breathtaking. But that's been the story of my life. He's just been faithful. And when you give yourself to Jesus, he gives more than himself to you. He gives himself in people and brothers and sisters. That's why we have care group. As Chris talked about today. That, that's, that's why we have friends. That's why we're a family in Christ. So, a couple of application points to close. Just two questions to ask you guys. Where are worldly appetites maybe drawing your heart away from finding your, your greatest hope, your greatest treasure in God? Worldly appetites for prestige or for success or for approval, for prominence, for money. Just pray about that and ask the Lord, Lord, would you show me where I'm letting worldly appetites obscure you and and make themselves bigger in my heart than you? And would you cleanse me of that? Would you help me with that? And the second question As you look at this picture that Paul's painting of true discipleship, of pouring out your life, even becoming the scum of the earth, if God calls you to that, does it make you hopeless about discipleship? Does it make you hopeless about being a follower of Christ? Do you think, man, that's just too hard. I can't do that. Because if you're doing that, then you're looking to yourself again to define your hope. It's kind of like a, a poor man's boast, you know? Like, you're, you're just trying to measure yourself by yourself and as opposed to saying, I got it, I got what it takes. You're saying, I don't have what it takes. And that's, in its own way, just as bad. It's, it's just as much saying, God, you're irrelevant here. And so I would just call you to repent of that and to hope that if Jesus says, take up your cross every day and follow me, that you can, through his spirit, take up your cross every day and follow him. That if he calls you to that, if he calls me to that, and if he says, you've got nothing in yourself, and you you have no cause for boasting yourself, well, the implication is I'm not going to find the power to do that in myself, right? It's power that's only going to come from him. When he says to us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Our Savior also promised that as we seek to do that, we will find that that yoke of discipleship, it's easy because he makes it so. It's light because he makes it so. That it's restful because he makes it so. And he gives a rest the world cannot give with money and promotions and sex and entertainment and houses and cars. As much as those things might be good gifts or means by which he does bless us, they're not the source. They're not, they're not the root of what we truly, truly need and want in our hearts. 
But he gives rest from his Holy Spirit. And he can do that. He can do that in our hearts. So, thank you guys for for hanging in there with me this morning. We are a little bit over. Um, But I hope that the Lord has met you through his word. And um, I'm going to pray for us that we would be able to take this word and treasure it and see it work in our hearts. Let's pray. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are so beautiful. You are so good. You are so glorious. You are so delightful. You're the best food there is. You're the best drink there is. God, forgive us for finding our appetites fulfilled in lesser things. Forgive us for allowing lesser things to become greater in our hearts and find our satisfaction more and more in those things instead of you. Lord, where we've done that, please show us and please clean us. Lord, thank you for being a God of humility. Thank you for being a God of humble heart and gentleness. A God who pours himself out in self-sacrifice. That is so beautiful. Help us to see that that's who you are, Jesus. That when you say, I am gentle and humble of heart, you truly are that. Help that to be beautiful to us. Lord, help us not to buy into what this world says is beautiful and valuable. Prestige and power and pride. And Help us to found, Lord, find our, our joy in how beautiful you are in your humility and your servant's heart. Lord, give us power to trust you enough to follow you. Lord, you've just told us through your word, we don't have anything that we didn't receive from you. And so, Lord, give us what we need to follow you again. Give us what we need to pick up our cross daily and follow you, hearing your voice, trusting you to lead us step by step, hearing your commands through your word and Finding them not burdensome, but but having a sense that your spirit, Lord, will give us all we need to follow you in your commands so we don't give up. Lord, we're nothing. Everything that's good in our lives we have because you've given it to us. Whether it's a, a material good or a spiritual good. Whether it's our accomplishments or our character or spiritual maturity or anything that's of any good, Lord, in us is from you. Give us the joy of being relieved of the burden to carry our own glory. Help that to keep us from competing and comparing ourselves with others. 
that we might enjoy you, rest in you, and love others instead. God, do all these things through your miraculous Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' holy, authoritative, all-powerful, able to do all things, almighty name. We pray in Jesus' name, give us these things because you're so good and because you're so able and because we need them so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.